This is the Zens Podcast on Science, Technology, Entrepreneurship. I'm your host, Zen Rang Yap, and my guest today is Jack Chong. On paper, he studies philosophy, politics, and economics at Oxford. In reality, he runs uh, the OX1 Incubator, only ideation to seed stage incubator in Oxford, which awards £50,000 in equity-free grants. And he reboots the entrepreneurial space in Oxford and London, having started multiple startups and the Rich Brunch Club. He is a builder and thinker at heart, fashioning himself as a concept engineer, community engineer, and a token engineer. Jack has a deep fascination in many areas, including fundamental sciences. Before, we have chatted about information theory, rocketry, biotech, and many analysis of society. Go check out his blog for more. He always brightens up the room wherever he goes, and I'm certainly very happy he's here today. Welcome to the podcast, Jack. Thank you for having me here, Zen. So just for some background, Jack and I met uh, when I was working with another guy called Mohammed on an OX1 project. So after we won the Bryn Award, Jack reached out to me for a chat. And we realized we had very many similar interests talking about black holes and information theory there, the Saturn V, a rocket that led the Apollo astronauts to the moon, something that Jack was deeply fascinated by when he was younger. And then he told me about his interests in diplomacy and the Belt and Road Initiative and all sorts of uh, things going on in the world right now. And Jack started the Rich Brunch Club that was uh, every Sunday in London that where we met all sorts of different people who all had uh, very entrepreneurial interests where we were all biased to action. Right? And so now Jack has created the Rich House where we are now and yeah. Uh, Jack, tell us about your journey from being an aspiring diplomat to a tech founder and how that led to the Hacker House we're in at the moment. Yeah, sure. So for the listeners out there, a bit of background about myself. Um, so I grew up in Hong Kong and then I came to the UK to study sex form. Now, when I was in Hong Kong, like many other slightly talented Asian kids, uh, the norm is to study STEM uh, and I was one of them. Um, I, however, got quite fed up uh, when I after I joined a philosophy colloquium hosted by one of our teachers at my former school in Hong Kong. I thought that uh, philosophy was, it was exactly what I was looking for, you know, rather than sticking to marking schemes and memorizing the structure of atom or the sort of drawing out electron diagrams and, uh, you know, sticking to these rules. Philosophy really taught me to uh, stand on the shoulders of the giants and to think beyond what it seems like. And so I took a leap and I got really interested in sort of philosophy, politics and economics as a sort of academic study. You know, as a kid, I've always played strategy games and I'm fascinated by history and strategy and actually myths as well. Um, And that naturally, you know, with 20... 14-ish to 2016, there was the Belt and Road Initiative, and um, it, and you know it, that was the hype at the moment. And growing up in Hong Kong, being in um, in an entrepot environment, the embodiment of the West and the Orient, uh, I aspired to be the bridge, you know, and jumped on the bandwagon on Belt and Road Initiative. So I actually learned Arabic um, since sort of uh, 16, so for a few years. And I lived in Amman in Jordan, um, studied at a language school called Qatar Arabic, where right now Oxford Cambridge Arabist, so Arabic students and also American students will send their sort of Arabic students there for study abroad. So my classmates there was, you know, that was really eye opening for me in multiple ways, right? The first one is my classmates will be on federal scholarships uh, from the USA. Um, you know, after graduation, after they finish the course in Amman, they will complete further intensive language trainings up north in Virginia <laughs> uh, and uh, join the FBI or CIA and become analysts. Um, there, were, there were a few in my, in my class where we shared about American for, uh, foreign policy discussion um, in the Middle East. And the second way that it opened me up was I understood what it was like to be an expat. You know, before Hong Kong, uh, us locals always joke about and we laugh at the, the white people, right? The guaylos in, in Hong Kong. And I didn't really realize, right, why did they live in a parallel life compared to us locals? 
When I was living in Jordan, I understood completely. I am a Chinese. I fit in with the English crowd, with the English speaking crowd, since I speak English fairly well. And I, compared to the Jordanian locals, I am an expert. And so my natural tendency when I was in Jordan was to hang out with the English crowd.、Um, and you know, at some point, I realized that's not right. So I actually joined、um, and attended a few events in local universities. There,、um, they were actually about tech startups. <laughs> so in the in in the Amman, I think it's called、um, Startup Grind in Amman, Jordan. So. Well, to cut the story short, basically, what happened with Hong Kong recently、uh, meant that ideologically and practically、uh, diplomacy is no longer a feasible path,、uh, well, as a career path. And I also realize a lot of our institutions are broken, or if not broken, very slow. And the best way to、uh, improve these institutions is not to improve them. <laughs> But to scratch them, destroy them, and rebuild them, and technology really appeals to me because it is a career path where it is very high leverage, and as a young person, you can have a lot of impact. Where else? Tell me, what other sectors can you, as a let's say twenty to twenty-five years old, run a billion-dollar company? It's impossible in finance. It's impossible in. Politics, right? Run a billion-dollar budget.、Um, you have to climb your way up. So that basically led me to、um, be very involved in the tech scene, and you know, and right now I'm aspiring to be a startup founder myself. Just curiosity: What was the、uh, tech scene like in Jordan?、Um, was it just a couple of events, or were there lots of people doing things? It's basically just a couple of events,、uh, and the reason is.、Uh, Jordan in itself is not an innovation economy.、Uh, the national direction right now has has been to leapfrog from a foreign aid dependent country into a knowledge economy.、Um, in the past, Jordan used to be called the Switzerland of the Middle East, since it was relatively politically stable in a region that is known to be politically divisive.、Um, but、uh, I think. It still faces a lot of challenges at the moment.、Oh. Uh, and what were the like people who were going to the FBI like? <laughs> That's just like you only see that in movies, right? So yeah, so I think they look like us, they talk like us, and they walk like us.、Um, there's nothing special on the outset,、um, except that、uh, very admirably they have a heart to serve the country and their country. Has the heart to sponsor them, which was you know really encouraging、mm. for me.、Um, I think the U.S. is a、um, when it comes to educating its future elites、uh, to join a government.、Um, the federal scholarships is a very good、um, mechanism to specifically you know I want to pinpoint this: the the students that they sponsor, a majority of them are not from the Ivy League. They are not from Uh, Harvard, Yale, Princeton. They are from state universities. You know, University of,、uh, of Virginia, universities of Michigan, etc. And I think that is a great thing, right? Where you know the the U.S. actively promotes social mobility,、um, and I think that's what a good democratic country should be. Oh, very perceptive.、Um, so the last time I saw you, you mentioned you'd been doing a deep dive into software engineering. And since then, I've noticed you put your LinkedIn into stealth mode, and I'm built and I'm building something. So, could you tell us a bit about what you're building? So, I'm actually I've just made the jump to Web three to crypto, and I finished a crypto software engineering、uh, bootcamp. And、uh, you know, before we recorded this podcast, I was actually、uh, just writing code, and I was sort of debugging a a few lines of code that I, I got stuck for a while, and. Um, I am a stablecoin nerd, and、uh, I'm really fascinated by stablecoin. It is a, it is a, it is, it is the highest impact cryptocurrency that will very silently kill fiat.、Um, and you know, for the listeners out there who ain't sure about what stablecoin is,
stablecoin is a type of cryptocurrency that pegs to one uh, fiat dollar. You know, you can have um, one USD, for example, USDC, um, which is pegged to one USD. Um, and there's also, you know, parallels. Uh, there are stablecoins that pegs to one euro, stablecoin that pegs to one Japanese yen as well. I see. Um, so, where do you see yourself in the ecosystem of deep tech, biotech, crypto scientists and engineers? Yeah, so as a, so I have to confess, I am a non-technical person, so I'm not going to pretend that I'm in the same caliber as many of my talented friends, and you know, Zen included, you're a very talented um, aeronautical engineer. Thank you. And I would say, you know, it's, I quite like the title of concept engineer, community engineer, and token engineer, right? Yeah. And, and those three terms go in descending order of layers of abstraction. Um, let me explain this to you. The, the, the name concept engineer very broadly, very abstractly refers to just the act of you know, coining new terms, coining new concepts, mm. or improving concepts, or just making concepts easier and maybe more uh you know make or even coming up with models that yeah. has high efficacy in predictions um so i think that's where my strength lies in mm -hmm. uh i am a ideas guy and i'm a people's guy i'm not really an object guy and so perhaps you know in the ecosystem of deep tech people i will be hopefully um the a a bridge and um thinking a layer of abstraction above uh, objects and uh, hopefully to be able to direct the, the skills and talents of, of engineers and deep tech scientists uh, into the most efficient direction. Hmm. Um, I find a lot of the time the difficulty that uh, for people who are more ideas people is in trying to execute it, right? Um, so what do you do? Do you find someone that uh, balance you, balances you out in that way, uh, that has a lot of experience in it? Or what do you do? So there are two things that ideas people can do. So the first one is just internal improvement, right? So try to step out of your comfort zone and uh, engage with objects. So mm. that's the reason why I made the jump and decided to learn coding. Um, I know that I won't be a good developer. Um, I have a hunch, but um, I just want to be good enough that you know I can quickly prototype myself without relying on third parties. That's the first bit. The second bit is, uh, you know, Zen, you're absolutely right. So, um, you know, make friends with engineers who are object people, and uh, they will balance you out and uh, you know work work together um, in a project. But in in any case, I think I think the the alpha here is to be both. Um, is you can you can have an edge with ideas, but you still have to be quite familiar and very comfortable with objects, and that's what I'm working towards. Mm -hmm. And I find um, when you also start to build, right? Like if you're an ideas person, you start to build. It gives you um, a bit of a reality check and allows you to understand what you're actually um, trying to get at, right? Trying to manifest it. So, and I think that it also allows you to see the problems. So what do you, what are the problems at the moment with what you're trying to build? Do you think stablecoin? Yeah. So um, I have a few ideas. Uh, so the largest problem with stablecoin are two things, and you know people will disagree with me because these are non-trivial. The first one is um, slight, slightly less controversial, is a pack mechanism. How can we design a token, a type of currency that is stable? Right, that has very low volatility in price that packs to one fiat currency. Uh, there are many ways to do it. There's the centralized way of, do it, of doing it, which is what most uh, major stablecoins are doing right now. We have the USDT, Tether, we have the USDC, which is by Circle and Coinbase. But obviously, there are also other attempts. Uh, there is a type of stablecoin called Algo-backed stablecoin which is by using an algorithm, by having elastic supply and playing with uh, tokenomics and interacting with different uh, decentralized finance protocols, 
um, the token can achieve low volatility. So pack mechanism, that's the first uh, hard problem, remain to be solved. The second problem, in my opinion, is institutional adoption. And it kind of follows from the first problem. Institutional adoption means how can we get more traditional financial institutions, think about asset managers, think about funds, or even sovereign states. Um, you know, uh, the country of El Salvador has decided to buy Bitcoin um, on its own balance sheet. And that, in my opinion, is a huge milestone because it means that nation states are adopting cryptocurrency. And stablecoin is an important wedge. It is a foot in the door because stablecoin is designed to be stable. However, um, its value is linked to fiat, but it is intrinsically on chain. It is intrinsically on blockchain. So it kind of gets the best of both worlds. Um, and specifically, the problem I'm actually trying to solve is uh, treasury management. So if you are a, let's say if you are Amazon, you have a hundred billion dollars on your balance sheet in cash. Um, at the moment, the way companies do this is to buy uh, T-bond, which is treasury notes. Short term, US government issued bond. Um, however, these bonds are fundamentally assets, which means there is a risk that the price will go up or down. So, but the fundamental goal of holding cash is you want to preserve its value. You want stability rather than vol volatility. And uh, there has to be a way to solve this. And I have a few ideas and I'm currently working on it and contributing to a few existing, um, not exactly the same as what I have in mind, but adjacent uh, stablecoin projects. Uh, but once I have got any major updates, I'll definitely let you know then. Awesome. That's, that's, that's wonderful, Jack. Um, so with all these interests, right, in like Web3, biotech, uh, deep tech, how do you keep up with everything? And what are the frameworks for analysis you use? Um, previously, we talked about second order effects, vertical stacks, bundling and unbundling. Sure, yeah. So I am a nerd when it comes to uh, reading. Um, I'm not a nerd when it comes to writing yet. I really want to push myself. Um, I think the way I keep up with information is to make sure my my input, my knowledge input, is in the right noise to signal ratio. Most people focus on signal, which is very important, intuitive, and it can be done by reading um, catered content or curated content. I think that is fine, but. I think the non-trivial point here is to find out the optimum ratio of noise to signal. Noise is good, but not intrinsically good. What do I mean by that? A lot of the random and interesting ideas I come across are from unknown Twitter accounts or unknown Substack that I found by certain by searching certain keywords. And so, I think what I think when it comes to knowledge input, we need to capture the variance but not the median. So a lot of the, a lot of value comes from a long tail of unknown or um, unorthodox content. And the way I do it is whenever I see these interesting ideas and content, I put them onto my knowledge, uh, onto my knowledge base um, in Notion. And I, that helps me aggregate all these ideas. So what about things like YouTube, where you can have actually a lot of really good uh, signal, right? But you also get a lot of noise. So how do you incorporate some of that? And I mean, with Twitter, you also get some of that, right? I agree. I think YouTube is an interesting example. YouTube is interesting because of two things. Number one, it's noise to signal ratio is a bit skewed, depends on your keyword. Uh, for certain more uh, academic keywords, it can have pretty good signal. For other keywords that have an ambiguous meaning, for example, terms in crypto, terms in technology, or anything that has to do with financial speculation, you will have videos that are made by bots or some random Indian dudes that the videos mean nothing at all. And it's also interesting because it is a video format. It is a multi-audio 
uh, medium of expression and it's easier to you know it's easier to watch rather than to read right for the majority of population um, so the way I use YouTube is if I come across a concept or a word that I know will be slightly more mainstream than I, than I would search on YouTube and see if someone has explained or talked about it. But usually when I go down a rabbit hole deep enough, I realize no one has made any YouTube content yet. And they will usually, you know, these concepts, anything that mentioned these keys, uh, these keywords will reside in a dark corner of the internet somewhere on Twitter or Reddit. Um, or even sometimes in a particular paragraph of an obscure academic journal. And that happens to me multiple times, but especially when it comes to the intersection of philosophy and technology and political philosophy and, te and technology. Oh, I see. So uh, with that, it's actually easier to, well, I suppose it's uh, more effective to use YouTube for an introduction to things. But to dive deeper, you'd have to go to books or talk to someone or go to Twitter, academic journals. Exactly, yep. I see. So, um, how do you analyze and research and write about these interesting phenomena once you've learned about it, like the Pratt subscription or the article about the great man to great founder theory? So, for the listeners, uh, well, I hope that Zen you will include a link somewhere in the podcast description. So for context, um, Pratt is a coffee chain here in the UK and in Europe, and they're actually in Asia as well. They started a coffee subscription scheme where you pay 20 British pounds uh, to get a limited coffee per month. It was started in 20, late 2019, sort of um, uh, ish. And I saw this phenomenon, a lot of my friends here in Oxford and London talking about it. And I said, right, well, if everybody's talking about it, but no one's is giving out answers for why Pratt did this. Everybody's asking the same question. So I decided to take matters into my own hands. And by that, I mean writing. And I wrote a blog about it. And very luckily, my blog got picked up by the Financial Times. And uh, I think my digital persona, my media presence probably peaked at that point. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so that's the context for the Pratt article. Um, for the great man to great founder theory, that is a sort of intersection of historiography and uh, technology. And it was motivated by a book review, well, by a series of book reviews. Um, if you find it interesting, I think feel free to check, feel free to search on Google. I think my blog is probably the only content, the only link that uses those exact um, keywords. My writing process, starts with reading a lot so like what i said previously i like compiling links and content i found somewhere online i put them into a notion database my personal knowledge base and i group them by an abstract category or sort of um, i usually have a slightly provocative title for each um, category and i will group things put things within this category uh, and the way I do research is I am a very, you can call me very unoriginal, but I actually enjoy doing secondary reviews. So I actually enjoy to, you know, if I come across this keyword, let's say, uh, prep coffee plan or whatever, before I wrote this, I, you know, I went on Google and I searched, has anybody, you know, used, written anything on prep? how make money or whatever, these combinations of keywords. And it turns out nobody has, so that's why I wrote it. Um, the writing part is a bit, I, I think the writing part is just, the actual writing of it is just, you need to dedicate time and headspace to do it. Mm -hmm. I see. So what's your, what's your favorite blog you've written so far? Well, I have to say, the best is yet to come. Oh, okay. And I actually have more than a hundred titles in my pipeline um, and you know ranging from what I like to call quirky science trendy thoughts and hitting connections um, my favorite one so far it's probably the great man to great founder theory because it combines uh, what I study PPE philosophy politics and economics 
with technology, which is a new intersection, a new intellectual niche that I recently discovered. And I thought it's underrated, underlooked, overlooked, and it will only become even more important in the future. Yeah, so can you talk a little bit more about the philosophy of technology? Sure. So, so philosophy of technology, it's just something that I recently discovered slash uh, a niche I found. There's a few angles to attack this. Um, we can, what, what does it mean when we say philosophy of X? So we usually say, right, maybe there are certain mental models that help us understand technology. And that could include, for example, what we call the ontology of technology, which is the being, the properties of technology. There's also the um, relationship between, between human and technology. Does technology increase human agency or does it reduce human freedom? Does it emancipate us or does it constrain us? And I think for most of your listeners uh, and for us Gen Zers, we'll be interested in the political philosophy of technology, which is how technology permeates and eats up our society and even our state. Um, an angle to look at this is to look at how big tech has become de facto more powerful than some sovereign states in the world. Yet, they are also subjected you know, to American regulations or to uh, British rules or European rules. You know, for example, Facebook Meta has recently said they might plan to pull out um, their operations in Europe. So overall, philosophy of technology includes what technology is, um, what is our relationship between technology and us, ourselves, and for example, what is the relationship between technology and politics or society. Yeah, and I suppose um, understanding or I suppose like having an interest and reading a lot about um, philosophy of technology allows you to um, see where the landscape is going as a concept engineer, token engineer, a community engineer, right? Um, so do you think more people should be, more technical oriented people should also be looking into this? I think so. Going back to the ideas people and object people distinction, technical people are mostly object people. And I think there is a lot of low hanging fruits to just learning from ideas people or just interacting with ideas as a whole. Um, something that I personally find very interesting is the design philosophy, you know, and I think that's a really good entry point for object people into thinking about ideas. If we step up a layer of abstraction and think about why are iPhones designed with round edges and how that design paradigm comes about, um, that can make a difference, right? If, I mean, obviously, a lot of engineers will know that is a sort of uh, the the form is the function and the function is the form, this type of thinking. How do you design a table? Well, it depends on what is function. How do you use a table? Well, it depends on its form. Yeah. And it, it might come intuitive for engineers. I think taking a step back and re-examining these thoughts will open up um, the ability for engineers to interact with ideas. And then gradually, you know, you will go down a rabbit hole of philosophy of technology. <laughs> you always say layer of abstraction, right? So what do you, what do you exactly mean by that? Like, um, what are the steps can you take? Is it just asking why over and over again? So when I say layers of abstraction, I think of it as very similar to how biologists think of systems. Hmm. In biology, uh, a lot of fundamental science research is looking at how things operate at a particular system and how things interact between systems. For example, the way a particular disease work might involve a particular cell type, but the core root of the disease might be because of a particular protein within the cell. 
but the way the disease spreads, you know, let's say virus, right? The way COVID spreads, it is, you know, in, it is it is both intracell and between cells. Um, so just applying this mental framework to things in general, to ideas in general, then we conclude that layers of abstraction means, for example, when we talk about political issues, do we think at the individual level? Do we think at the group level, at the society level, at the nation state level? Um, and even more interestingly, do you think about present or do you think about past or do you think about future? <coughs> so layers of abstraction comes from many forms. Yeah, I think it's quite similar uh, to the way material scientists think, which I think I may have um, mentioned to you before. You're taking things at the micro scale and the macro scale, understanding how they influence each other, how they fit together, how do you exploit them for gain, right? Like solving problems. So it's like taking a look at different scales, short term, long term, uh, at the individual level. I think it allows you to almost apply like a stress test to any concept that you're thinking about, right? Would you agree? Yeah, I agree. And uh, I think stress test is a good uh, metaphor, especially as a material scientist. <laughs> you literally push the ideas and apply pressure to it and then see if it, if it bounces back. Yeah, yeah see if there's like a, something underlying at the bottom. Yeah. Um, so furthering on with uh, technology, philosophy technology, uh, one of my friends, uh, Aito Miyamura, is a third year computer scientist here. And he, he mentioned that most of the technologies and the way we do things today are due to uh, Moore's law, exponential computing power. And similarly, the cost of space travel is going down almost exponentially as well. So um, do you think we could be in the beginning of the next Moore's law? Um, I thought you'd have some interesting ideas and takes on that. So it depends on in what domain, right? So I think in terms of semiconductor manufacturing or the cost of computing, um, we are reaching a bottleneck where, number one, Moore's law is not really a law. It's just a statistical correlation. and the bottleneck here is, you know, once we get into two nanometers, three nanometers production and scaling up, then the then we need to improve computing power not by cramming in more uh, cramming in more transistors and a chip, but rather thinking about efficient design and thinking about you know there's one new fabrication design that I saw recently that involves using three D design so thinking about how transistors interact with each other like top down rather than sort of left and right. And I, and I thought that is a really good um, space to explore further, right, to do breakthroughs. Um, and on top of that, another way to improve is to look at reversible computing, which I wrote a blog about uh, on a slightly tangent basis. Uh, it's called, Can Life Survive the End of Universe? And it turns out that the, the way our computing, the way our logic gates work at the moment is quite inefficient. And I suppose since quantum computing itself is a type of reversible computing, uh, the energy used from that is more efficient. And obviously the computing power is, is much more greater than semiconductor computing. So perhaps the breakthrough to Moore's law is via quantum computing. But there's also the other domain that you mentioned, the space travel domain. And I think SpaceX is playing a very similar role to TSMC in producing semiconductor chips. SpaceX has made uh, rocket launches much cheaper, right? And there's even companies, let's say Verda, which is funded by Founders Fund, and they do in-space manufacturing. And similar to how in a software world, in a traditional Silicon Valley world, where you have an internet protocol or you have a software infrastructure and then you get software engineers to build applications on top of it and these applications are consumer facing. I think SpaceX is the next AWS of space and Verda is similar to how let's say Dropbox or Google Drive is to us. Um, you know Verda serves uh, manufacturers of 
delicate material that um, that sees the potential of manufacturing in space because it's simply very costly or very impossible to manufacture to uh, 3D print organs or semiconductor wafer designs, right? So that's a space domain, but I think another domain that we've been missing is actually the, bio the biology domain, the biotech domain of Moore's law. In biology, there's an interesting reversion of Moore's law. And listeners, if you work in a pharmaceutical industry, prepare to listen, uh, prepare to hear about Urim's law from this uh, amateur <laughs> biotech <laughs> enthusiast. Urim's law is, well, it spells backwards of Moore's law. And it talks about how the cost of producing drugs, of doing drug development, is actually exponentially increasing. And several reasons um, at play, one of them include most of the lower hanging fruits of drug development have already been picked. So what we're solving right now is more complex disease or just basically untargetable uh, drug target. Uh, but however, I think there is a reversion to this. We are improving. Uh, we, the bottleneck is the combination of software and biology, where a lot of the stuff that we couldn't have done before in the atom realm, we're able to do it in the bits realm. So let's say AlphaFold. We could not have been able to predict the structure of protein for a very, very long time. And software in the forms of bits helps us predict the structure of atoms. That's really cool. And, uh, with AlphaFold, uh, my friends are studying biochemistry and now like using the software in their labs, right? So it's already trickled down to that stage, you know. Um, I want to ask, could what Facebook's, well, Meta is doing with its Metaverse and other companies as well, could that be another possible Moore's law? I have to confess, I cannot foresee how much of an impact or how big or the scale of impact Metaverse will have on us. Um, and my ignorance comes from a similar light to how we were also ignorant about the power of the internet. I think that in terms of Moore's law and the metaverse realm, there is an interesting interaction between metaverse and the computing realm and metaverse on the simulation realm. So metaverse and the computing realm, what I mean by that is Moore's law made computing power cheaper and more powerful and this allows metaverse to run more smoothly on simulation on the other hand algorithms and software becomes more complex and powerful and that makes simulations of reality or pseudo reality easier and quicker and requiring less computing power so when you have these two forces interacting with each other I think metaverse will likely be more prevalent, so there will be a higher adoption of metaverse and it will become perhaps more powerful and have a better UX. Um, does it have to look like reality? I think it depends on the use cases. Um, but I will end with this note, sort of um, NVIDIA's annual keynote, I think just a few months ago, they mentioned the concept of Omniverse, which is running digital twins of world for enterprises, surprisingly. So if you are a factory, if you are a manufacturer and you want to stress test particular bottlenecks in your supply chain or manufacturing process, and it's too costly to run it in real life. You know, if you are TSMC and you want to improve particular manufacturing workflow, you know, TSMC literally spent tens of billions to build a particular plant and that particular workflow might be might be costing millions and you know as an enterprise you can't really risk a few millions just to run a test that you don't even know if it's going to work and Nvidia's pitch is to create digital twins where you can tweak and run improvements on a digital twin and then you can see right it works it doesn't work and then that reflects um, in real life I think that could be an interesting application awesome um, Oh, uh, you changed your 
uh, Facebook name to Meta Jack Chong <laughs> yep. and Instagram and everything. Well, that was more of a joke than anything, right? Yeah, it is. It is. When um, shortly after Facebook changed its name to Meta, and I thought, oh, you know, I've always been quite Meta myself. You know, listeners, <laughs> if you've been listening to this long, then you'll realize the way I talk, the way I think, is you know between jumping between layers of abstraction, which is being Meta, being on the ground, being Meta. So I think Meta Jack Chong is a name that fits me. So it's Meta Jack Chong, the one that exists in the pseudo, the pseudo reality, <laughs> <laughs> the one on the metaverse, right? Yeah. <laughs> That's great. Um, yeah. So I want to ask, what are your? We've talked a lot about startups and um, building things and the excitement that comes with it, right? So uh, I want to go on the converse side. What do you think about um, the most of the corporate jobs that Oxford students take, like investment banking, consulting, etc.? Well, I think it is a unfortunate truth that a lot of our talents goes towards uh, Wall Street, and I think this is a problem that not the UK it's not just the UK is facing. The US is also facing the Wall Street brain drain, right? Um, and you can also say about the government, where right? the government also suffers from brain drain. So the way I see it is, I have this proposition of what I call sector rotation of talent allocation. Now, if you are hundred, if you, if we travel back three hundred years ago, what's the path to power? Where do the smartest talents go? Well, they might join the government. You know, if you are part of the British Empire, you might become a civil servant and be a governor in some faraway colonies. If you are more adventurous types, you will be an adventurer and travel out far. To Malaysia, Singapore, Hong Kong, and set up Hongs, set up traveling ports over there, and then you gradually build a billionaire conglomerate. A hundred years ago, what would you do? If we look at J.P. Morgan, Goldman Sachs, right, the founders of these industrial era institutions that prevail till this age. A hundred years ago, talented folks will go into building hard manufacturing stuff and you know jumping on the bandwagon of industrialization 20, 50 years ago 50 or 30 years ago smart talented folks will go into wall street right especially with the invention of um, junk bond private equity etc and there was a you know, and you know what i call it the hyperinflation of neoliberalism the, the fact or the zeitgeist, the national ethos, the spirit that believes that money solves problems and so a lot of talented folks work for money, not for higher aspirations. 20 years ago, or actually you call it 10, 10 years ago, we see more Stanford folks, more MIT engineer folks and some very limited Harvard folks go into technology. And technology is a very broad uh, is a very broad umbrella term. It includes software. It can also include you know Zen, what you're doing right now, engineering, sort of STEM related, innovative career types. So, if we look at this, then I think, and we compare the fact right that Oxford students mostly just you know still working at jobs that were popular since the eighties. The conclusion is, and my conclusion is, they're not catching up. Um, and so, I mean, I have this contrarian tick, right, which is if the dominant sector rotation right now is in technology, then perhaps the riskiest and the contrarian decision is not to go into technology, but to work in places that have been neglected by smart talents. One of it could be government. And I think that could be a good pivot for Oxford students, given Oxford's affiliation with the British ruling class in here and the international global and the international global elite. Um, but in short, you know, to be honest, um, I also understand you know, so, so some of my friends have told me about this. You know, told me not to. Not to basically shit on Oxford students going into banking, consulting, and law because of financial security, which I understand. But I think if they do the maths, then they realize 
um, on a risk-adjusted return basis, going to tech is far better than those corporate jobs. Uh, but anyways, you know, it's good that we get more bankers, consultants, and lawyers uh, who are Oxford graduates. We need more of them so that when I get rich, I can hire them and I can hire the best consultants, <laughs> bankers, and lawyers. At the end of the day, these are still very important roles that they play in society to underwrite IPOs. So you need to uh, be consultants and advisors as well to people that possibly don't know as, as much about finance. Um, it's just the um, the dogmatic um, worshipping of these career roles which um, could be an issue at this point, I find. And also, I find it quite interesting that Oxford actually has a lot of history with the big roles at the times, investment banking, etc. Back then with the civil service uh, creating the the generals that go out and serve the British Empire, right? There are a couple uh, large conglomerates in Asia where if you look back in history on the Wikipedia pages, they're all from one college in Cambridge, right? Hundreds of years apart. So. Um, and I actually wrote about this. So I have a blog called Adventurer's Imperialism in Hong Kong. It is a book review of a book on a history of Swire. So Swire is a conglomerate um, started by a Scottish adventurer uh, who started uh, first initially in Hong Kong as a trading company between China and Hong Kong. Um, and Swire sponsors a few scholarships in University College in Oxford and I think Trinity as well. Um, and part of the connections there is Swire used to be a very vigilant, um, careful watcher of Oxford graduates. And Swire always wanted to recruit the best towards working in faraway places. And you know, and you can argue, you know, it serves the interest of the British Empire as well. So, um, I, you know, maybe you can put a link. <laughs> <laughs> of course. What is it about startups and building that gets you excited? I think fundamentally it's agency. Technology is an entrepreneur themselves, you know, um, are a rare breed that prizes volatility over stability, right? I think a lot of successful founders are heavy risk takers. They are not risk minimizers. And I think as a young person myself, um, that really appeals to me, you know, the fact that every day you're on a grind, you know, you want to push certain product, you want people to use it, and you, and you want to solve their problems. And the best part, let's face it, we all make money, right? I make money selling the product, and you make money as a user because maybe it helps you make more money, right? Or it improves your workflow, it saves your time. Um, and so I think that's the appeal for me, but I do recognize you know, like we mentioned earlier in a the podcast, they are object people, right? And so I think for them, the appeal of startup is the being heads down and not interfered, not interrupted by anyone else, but just getting the work done and producing an object that you can claim the fruits of your labor. I think that's where object people find it appealing. So, um since we're both quite young people, we're still trying to figure out what we think about money, right? And a lot of people who I've talked to, we have very differing opinions. Some people just want to make a lot of money. Some people, um, especially in the UK, are probably more comfortable living a more like relaxed lifestyle and possibly are not as concerned about money, maybe even shun the pursuit of it. Uh, I wonder what your thoughts on that are. Yeah, I definitely agree. That is a very perceptive um, observation on the British mentality. I think the British upper class and the social elites, or especially those who, I mean, the fact that you know we're both in Oxford, we kind of by definition fit into the elite bracket. Um, and this elite bracket shines, uh, shuns away from money and wealth creation because they think it's vulgar. Whereas if you look in America, wealth creation is seen to be a good because the American dream in itself embodies wealth creation from rags to riches um, which one do we prefer morally I think personally I, I prefer anything that increases human agency and that would mean the rags to riches story and so I think if you are a young person 
and if you feel like you are a bit wasting your potential in time um, then maybe you should think about doing things that align with wealth creation you know it's fine if you don't care about money you know you maybe just want a very stable good middle class lifestyle that's fine but have a think back you know um, does that is that going to help you you know having a stable lifestyle is it going to help you achieve your potential in most cases no right you know even if we look at you know let's uh, let's say you have a more impactful career social impact um, sometimes it aligns with the accumulation of power sometimes maybe you have to be climbing up to a hierarchy in order to make the most impact um, and I think just simply recognizing that fact I know it's brutal I know that a lot of people don't talk about it because of virtue signaling but you know you can't lie to yourself otherwise YOLO right so on ecosystems uh, I want to ask you what the difference between the entrepreneurial scene in Stanford and Oxford is like is there a middle and how do we improve things in Oxford so a bit of context on this so I know very little about Stanford my interaction with the Stanford ecosystem is um, I was traveling in SF in a Silicon Valley last summer and what I observed is the status game is different in Oxford compared to Stanford and let me use it as a proxy for the health of ecosystem in Stanford if you know how can you be cool well you are cool if you are building or working on something cool or if you're nerdy about something then you're cool you know sort of intelligence is coolness in Oxford how do you gain social status well are you the president or secretary of society XYZ are you affiliating yourself with old institutions so Oxford students have this mindset where they think proximity to power equates the possession of power which I think sometimes is true but in most cases as a young ambitious you know a rich person a rebellious intellectually curious hustler that's not true so I would say the the, the difference is in the mindset uh, between Stanford students and Oxford students Stanford students spend their weekends learning something niche or weird or something they're nerdy about and maybe building projects Oxford students spend their weekends I don't know maybe going to bridge going to park end <laughs> going to club and uh, sometimes maybe read a few books here and there in a rat cam and you know they could have produced knowledge they could have written blogs that popularize what they've read but they choose not to do it which I think again it's another low-hanging fruit that most Oxford students can do um, on ecosystems that gives us a nice transition into communities right what is it like running OX1 uh, what are the patterns and successes you have seen wow so that is a very tricky question and it's something that I've reflected recently um, so for the listeners out there OX1 is an incubator that I run in Oxford and we onboard hundreds of Oxford founders um, well actually we onboard hundreds of Oxford students to become founders and we sit on top of the funnel in the startup ecosystem here. Running it is quite difficult. Um, OX1 is a public good and running OX1 is a public good problem. I have to be honest, there is a lot of things I can improve in OX1 and I have not done it because I'm a very selfish guy. I mean rational agent assumption, right? And sometimes incentives don't align. For example, I'm not paid. For example, sponsors don't see the immediate value of OX1 Incubator. However, I want to pitch this, you know, and if you are a, an investor or if you are just an Oxford alumni listening to this, hear me out. OX1 aggregates the most ambitious Oxford students, DFOs, masters, and undergrads. And what we do is we hold our hands. And we invite workshop partners to deliver workshops on them zero to one. And this is important. And why is it important? Because we've actually increased the market size. We've increased the talent pool here in Oxford. So if you're a VC investing downstream, aka you're investing in you know 23, 24, who have interned or you know who came out of OX1, you are the 
beneficiary of OS1 incubator. So, you know, when that is the case, obviously no one wants to really get their hands dirty and so OX1 becomes underfunded and undersupported. So here's my pitch. Now, the patterns of successes I've seen in OX1. Um, we haven't had any successes yet. You know, we're not Y Combinator. We haven't got an Airbnb or Stripe. Uh, but what we do have is in our first cohort 2018, um, one of our founders, one of our cohort members in 2018 got into YC recently. That was a huge boost to us as a brand because it shows that this public good is functioning. And um, and so, yeah, I really look forward, you know, I'm graduating this year, so I will be passing the torch to um, lower years here in Oxford to run OX1. And I'm really excited to see how they're gonna do it. Well, Jack, I'm certainly very glad that you, know, you took up the role of being president of OX1. Um, it was the thing that actually got me into looking more at this entrepreneurship stuff. And although you probably don't think that you've had as many successes, you'll, you'll probably see it come along uh, in a couple of years time very soon. So I'd uh, just like to thank you for that. Thank you. And uh, next thing was, why did you start the Rich Branches in London over the summer? You know, the London ecosystem is good and bad. It's good, it's, it's good because it's growing. It's bad because it's small. And it's even smaller if you're a young you know, university student like us or a fresh graduate. The reason why I started the London Rich Brunch Club, um, I actually have my friend Christopher to thank. So he basically just grouped, you know, the, if, you, if you look at Twitter, if you look at my Twitter, the first Rich Brunch was, you know, just five to six guys. We're all, we're all university students and we build products or we work in startups or we had our own projects going on. We had our first brunch and we thought that's great. You know, we met at 12 p.m. And we sat in the same restaurant until like 6 p.m. <laughs> and it was, it, was, it, it was an amazing feeling because we found a tribe. And I decided, right, why don't I bring my friends together and you know, introduce, connect this circle to another circle. And, uh, you know, lucky enough, I came up with the acronym RICH, um, stands for Rebellious Intellectually Curious Hustler, which is a way to dissect what top 1% founders really possess. You know, the, these are the traits. These sort of psychological traits that you can map different career archetypes and personality types onto. So I started it. I started the Rich Brunch Club because it is lonely to be a startup-minded, ambitious university student. And I think most importantly is peer support and learning from each other. You know, I learn a lot about rocketry and uh, I think Zen, like, very. we always chat about battery stuff. You know, I think last time I sent you a link on deep sea mining and how the and how increasing demand of lithium iron it's going to impact uh, the supply of lithium via deep sea mining which is a very nuanced question but you know it's thanks to rich club that we both you know get to meet many other like-minded people and we get to catch up regularly and so we get to you know share these um, interesting ideas that I think 99% of people in our age, number one, haven't, haven't really dived deep enough in these ideas, or number two, very unluckily, they haven't got the community to really give them the rocket booster and send <laughs> them up to Stratosphere. <laughs> that's, a, that's a wonderful metaphor. The, I, I personally have enjoyed them very much. I have met other some of the other people there who right, were on my course and did material science here as well and we got to talking about uh, the issues with scaling up something that my tutors talk about as well and how to how to approach applying more fundamental science to entrepreneurship why people are going why a lot of people are going to software engineering after doing a physical science right, these are all questions that have to be thought about to understand what the root cause is. Other times, um, I'm talking to other PhD students uh, on like philosophy of quantum mechanics, right? Of relativity, really deep things, reinforcement learning, why the academic side is really disjointed from the industrial side, right? Why, why that's an issue. So 
and uh, things like uh, building communities as well. It's only uh, through this club that I've gotten to uh, learn about all these things and talk, right? Uh, normalize discussion on um, on these topics. Also, uh, which then led me to do on that catalyst, which is what Jack and I, Jack also did, and then also learn how to raise, which is um, something that is very stressful. Very few people actually go through, but many people at other branches have been through. So, um, Jack has continued to bring this on to Oxford as well, using his rich house as um, the location for it. So, could you tell us what the rich house is? Uh, why, uh, why you brought together some really talented people for it, and how have you enjoyed it so far? Sure. So the rich house is a hacker house here in Oxford for Oxford students and it is the only hacker house for young founders in the UK so far and you know dare I say perhaps even Europe and the rich house is a counter narrative on the Oxford Zion guys Oxford is thinking too much in the ivory tower and doing nothing and the result is uh, people produce ideas that no one gives a shit about we talked about the contrast with Stanford before the caveat with Stanford is people always build and nobody thinks. The result is people build shit that no one uses. And so this hacker house, the rich house, is my attempt to seek the best from both worlds. And uh, it's really cool. You know, we have uh, five of us here and, you know, Zen, you've been to the launch parties as well, you know, and, uh, and officially we launched in early October in the beginning of this academic year in Oxford and I wrote a manifesto called the Rich Manifesto it's also on my blog FYI wink wink <laughs> and we hosted a launch party here with you know like 60 people from Oxford who are both um, either technically very competent so we have a lot of details a lot of PhDs in here but they are also very fed up you know with the ivory tower culture here and they want to do something and they want to build so you know I'm really excited about the Red Charles because it is a talent aggregator right and you know the fact that we are sitting here and recording this podcast in this table I think it means something and specifically you know Rich House um, is Rich House also attracts intellectually curious people so I organize reading groups um, every week where we um, go through Peter Thiel's course in Stanford. Uh, it's on sort of politics and slightly a bit about philosophy of technology as well. And, you know, it's very cool to see what I say, unorthodox, unconventional Oxford students interested in unconventional ideas. Um, so hopefully this is a good start. And uh, I'm really excited to see how, you know, I'm actually very curious about what the rest of the Oxford crowd think about the Rich House. Yeah, it's uh, whilst we're sitting here talking about the rich house, I can see the uh, the newspaper cutout actually. Yeah, so we got covered by the Oxford newspaper called Chobo, and uh, the tagline for the article for the coverage is "Oxford's first hacker house for the rich by the rich," and obviously, uh, "rich" is an acronym. Uh, FYI, uh, we're not wealthy enough yet. Uh, but as I said before, wealth creation takes a very long time. That's great. Uh, I want to ask Jack, uh, what are your next steps after you graduate? So, who am I? I am a concept engineer, community engineer, token engineer. And I want to double down on these three. And so at the moment, um, you know, I'm keeping reading and writing. And that sort of fulfills my concept engineer role. The community engineer falls onto my shoulders to keep organizing stuff for the Rich House and the Rich Brunch Club. The token engineer, that's where my interest and research and really I want to do deep dive into stablecoin. I want to be the expert in stablecoin and, you know, CBDC as well, central bank digital currency, which I think is inevitable and is under discussed at the moment. I haven't got any solid plans after graduation, but if you ask me what's on my checklist, to-do list, then I think then I think these three things are my KPIs and are my goals. That's great. Anything else you want to highlight, Jack? No. 
Awesome. Uh, where can people find your work and reach out to you? The blog. Give it the link to it. Yeah. So, well, it's a it's a pity you guys can't see us because this is audio only. But uh, you know, we can drop the link, and the link is a word to be honest if you just google search uh, Jack Chong Oxford and um, you'll be able to find my blog up there it's jack-chong.com and all the blogs I um, referenced today will be on there yes and for anyone interested in the incubator it's called OX1 incubator okay all right thank you very much Jack thank you Sam for having me yes it's been a pleasure thank you